Well, we introduced our series last week by pointing you to the most lovable and perhaps admired neighbor of all time, Mr. Rogers. Now, we were a little bit concerned that we might miss some generations uh, since Mr. Rogers went off the air back in 2003, but it turns out everybody loves Mr. Rogers, and people seem to get it, except for a few of our international folks who really had no idea who we were talking about. <laughs> Otherwise, he was a hit. But all neighbors are not so lovable and admirable. And depending upon your age group, you no doubt had some other TV neighbors come to your mind as we thought about that particular category. There are probably a few in the house who still remember Fred and Ethel Mertz from the mother of all sitcoms, I Love Lucy. If you came of age in the 60s and 70s, you might be thinking of uh, Mrs. Kravitz, the nosy neighbor from Bewitched or Archie Bunker's antagonist, Lionel Jefferson, drove Archie crazy. Later generations might remember Steve Urkel, the super nerd from Next Door and Family Matters, or ditzy Kimmy Gibber from Full House. <laughs> then, of course, there's Wilson, wise Wilson, dispensing advice over the fence and home improvement. The zany Cosmo Kramer, sliding into Jerry's apartment from across the hall. So there's a whole crew of them, and I know I forgot your favorite. I've been reminded of 20 of them already this morning who I forgot. But of all these folks, the TV neighbor who is perhaps most uncomfortably relevant to our purposes has got to be Ned Flanders. <laughs> right? The church-going, Bible-quoting, next-diddly-door neighbor to Homer Simpson. He's kind, he's generous, he's faithful, he's loyal, he's helpful, he's irritatingly perfect, and Homer doesn't know what to do with him. So is that the kind of neighbor we want to be? Is that the kind of neighbor Jesus would be? Now, we think of Jesus in all kinds of roles. We think of him as a teacher and a helper and a prophet and a leader and a savior and maybe even a carpenter but it rarely occurs to us that Jesus was a neighbor. He grew up in a small town. He had people living next door and across the street. He would have had classmates in school, playmates around the neighborhood. There were merchants he bought groceries from. There were customers he did business with. He spent 30 years in a small town. And so there were all kinds of people he had a day-to-day -day relationship with. And even after he left home and spent three years on the road, we still find him again and again having everyday encounters with people as he makes his way through life. So what kind of neighbor might Jesus have been? How did he relate to the everyday people in his life? Last week, we introduced our series by considering Jesus' foundational teaching on this subject. Love your neighbor as yourself. It turns out it wasn't just something Jesus said, it was something he did again and again and again. We have a whole collection of neighboring stories in the Gospels, everyday interactions that people had with people as he made his way through life. So for the next few weeks, we're going to follow Jesus around the neighborhood, so to speak. And we're going to learn from him how to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're going to keep it simple. Each week, try to offer a few simple words or phrases that capture the essence of neighboring as Jesus taught us how to do it. And today, 
we're going to discover that neighbors know their neighbors. Now, how's that for profound? Okay, glad you came to church today. Neighbors know their neighbors. As it turns out, we're not so good at that. A State Farm insurance study recently revealed that only about 25% of Americans know the names of the people who live on either side of them. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just a little mental check. Do you know the first and last names of everybody in the household on either side of you? Another study shows that only one in five Americans, 20%, spend any significant time at all with their neighbors in the course of a year. So think about it again. When was the last time you spent more than five minutes with someone in the neighborhood? So maybe we need to begin at this very basic level. Loving your neighbor begins with knowing your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor until you know your neighbor. And that's where we're going to start. And as I said, it turns out we need some help with that. If these statistics are even half right, we have a lot to learn about knowing our neighbors. So let's follow Jesus today as he turns a random everyday encounter into a lesson in neighboring. The story is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 17, and we'll take it in two different chunks here. So Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Now notice, this is not Jesus' neighborhood. Okay, Nain is miles away from Nazareth where he grew up. And so we just want to remember when we talk about neighbors, we're not just speaking about people who happen to live nearby. We're talking about people that we might have regular or even occasional encounters with as we make our way through life. And notice also that Jesus has a crowd with him already. That crowd probably included his disciples, uh, curiosity seekers, maybe some miracle hounds wanting Jesus to do something for him, probably some skeptics and some critics as well in this crowd of people. The point is, Jesus is not alone or lonely as he heads into town. He's not looking for more people to interact with. He's got a crowd with him. And I point that out simply because most of us already have a crowd as well. The kind of pace of life we live and the part of the country we live, I'm sure we all have lots of people that we are engaged in relationships with, between friends, family, coworkers, church friends. Most of us are not looking to add more names to our dance card, so to speak. And Jesus probably wasn't either as he headed into town that day. But as he and his crew make their way into town, they encounter another crew making their way out of town, and it's a funeral procession. Not an uncommon occurrence in that day and in our day as well. It could happen any time. The point is, both crowds are on their way to another destination. Just, again, pointing out that these people are not just wandering around looking for people to talk to. They both have things to do and places to go. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact that Jesus already has plenty of people with him, in spite of the fact that he's got something waiting for him there in that town to do, he still stops and he notices this crowd of people coming the other direction. In fact, he notices not only the crowd, he notices one woman at the center of that crowd, a grieving woman. 
Luke tells us very specifically, when the Lord saw her. Now, we can pretty safely assume that Jesus didn't know this woman already. Remember, this is not his hometown. And yet he seems to have discerned pretty quickly what's going on with her, that she's a widow who's lost her only son. Now, how did he know that? Well, some people might say, well, it's because Jesus is God and he knows everything. And that may be the case. But generally speaking, that's not how Jesus functions as he makes his way through the days in the gospel. Jesus came to earth made just as we are, like a human being. So as he made his way through the day, he used his senses, the, uh, the mind and body that God gave him to figure things out and make his way through the day. Now, for sure, he had the Holy Spirit at work fully and freely in him, but I don't think Jesus carried around a database in his head with a dossier on every human being that he encountered. I think he figured things out. I think he discerned who this woman was because he paid attention to what was happening. He noticed things. Jesus noticed things about people the way Sherlock Holmes notices things about people. The beautifully dressed woman who has dirt mysteriously under her fingernails. The guy who has the stray dog hair on the back of his coat notices things. And Jesus noticed things too. I think he noticed that there were no men walking with this woman. There was no husband in front of her. There were no sons beside her or behind her. I think he noticed that there were many younger adults in the crowd that day, suggesting that the one who died may also have been a younger person as well. I think he noticed the intensity of people's grief that day, suggesting that this person died well before his time. He just paid attention. And that, I believe, is how we begin to know our neighbors as well, by simply noticing things, by paying attention. And remember, this is just one little incident. There are all kinds of examples like this in the gospel. Jesus notices when children are being shuffled off by his disciples. He spots a tax collector hiding up in a tree. He hears a beggar calling his name from behind him in the crowd. He feels a woman touch the hem of his garment in a crowded street. Jesus noticed everything and everybody. And that's what neighbors do. They notice. They pay attention. They use the senses God has given them to discern what's happening around them. Now, Karen and I usually have a, try to have a quick breakfast together before we both head off to work in the morning. And the way our table's set up, we can look out the front window to the street right in front of our house. And so every morning for a few minutes, we watch our neighborhood parade by the front window, literally. Usually begins with the high school girl making her way down the street this way, striding determinedly toward the high school like she wants to get to school on time. Few minutes later, the middle school boys come, <laughs> shuffling along as if they have no intention of getting to school on time at all. And then every day, about 45 seconds later, another middle school boy comes down the street. Wait up, wait up. He's late every single day for years. So they make their way, and then along this way come the empty nest ladies. Their kids are growing up and out of the house, so they're out for their morning walk in the woods with the dog. And so they're sharing news about kids and grandkids and which house sold for how much in the neighborhood that week. And they make their way. And then every few days, the jogger comes by this way, running a little slower than she did 10 years ago when she ran by a few times a week. 
Then the guy across the street backs out of the door and heads off to work, unless it's Friday when he works from home. <laughs> so you get the idea. It's like the Truman Show. Everything's like, cue the dog walker, and everybody just does their part every single day. Now, on the one hand, it's very ordinary and very predictable, but every one of those people has a personality and a story. They have things happening in their lives that day, things that might prompt a spring in their step one day and cause them to have slumped shoulders the next day. And simply by noticing and paying attention, we can begin to put some of those things together. Now, it's nice to know what time they go to school and work every day, but what more might we learn if we paid just a little more close attention and really got to know our neighbors? Because the more we know our neighbors, the more likely we are to love them. You just can't help it. The more you know a person, the more likely you are to love them and care about them. So we've already talked about how difficult it is for Americans to actually know their neighbors. So one church decided to try to do something about that. So the pastor created this little grid, this neighborhood map with a house at the center and eight other house or blanks around it. And he, he tried the idea out first on his church staff, on the pastoral staff, and he asked them to fill in the blanks of eight, eight blanks with the names of the people who live around them and some bits of information about them, uh, where they came from originally, what they did for a living, how many kids they have, that sort of thing. The staff did so poorly at filling out that grid that they started calling it the chart of shame because it revealed how little they knew. Now, they had a church full of people they knew everything about, but the people who were part of their everyday lives, they hardly knew at all. Well, it was a wake-up moment for them, and that little exercise became the, the beginning of a church-wide initiative to know their neighbors. And over the years, that's become the singular focus of this church, to love their neighbors as themselves. That's their mission to love their neighbors. And the whole thing's been written up in a couple of books called The Art of Neighboring or The Neighboring Church, and that's where we got this particular little diagram from. Now, when you came in this morning, hopefully you might have picked up one of those little maps, either on the inside grace or a handout. If you didn't get one, make sure you get one on the way out, and we'll have some more next week. Because we'd like you, as we make our way through this series, to begin filling in some of those names. Now, there's eight blanks there. Remember, neighbors are not just the people who live nearby, so we're not just looking for eight names in your neighborhood, but eight people who are a part of your everyday experience as you do life around here. And just begin filling them in in the days to come and adding some details as we go. Now, a quick definition. Last week, we offered a definition of the word neighbor, and this is the one that I offered any human being you have the opportunity to interact with. So I tossed that out there as a starter and invited people to give me some feedback. And, and one of them came in, and here's, here's one that I think helps to clarify. Neighbor, the people God chooses to bring across my path and within my sphere of influence. That's pretty good. I like the fact that this one includes God, which would have been a nice thing for the pastor to include when he offered a definition of the word neighbor. So, duh. 
I like the sphere of influence word because it reminds us that neighbors aren't just anybody and everybody in the whole world, but they're people we have an opportunity to influence in some particular way, and it may be a small way, but they're people that we can interact with. Uh, so let me offer a modified version of the definition. How about this? Neighbor, any person God calls to my attention and within my sphere of influence. I like that call to my attention phrase because it implies some intentionality on our part and some interactivity between us and God. In other words, we use our eyes and ears, we pay attention to what's happening around us, and we pay attention to the Holy Spirit prompting us to notice a particular person or event as it happens in front of us. Now, I'm sure this wasn't the only funeral procession Jesus ever encountered as he made his way from one town to another. I'm sure there were plenty. But on this day, the Lord called, the Spirit called this one to his attention. And so when he paid attention to that procession, he happened to notice the particular woman at the center of it. And it was the beginning of a neighboring moment. And so I think that's a skill we can all develop. It's a practice we can cultivate. Paying attention to the people around us and the prompting of the Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just notice the woman. He actually takes the time to feel what she's feeling, to enter into her experience. Look again at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. What a tender scene this is. Remember now, Jesus is surrounded by people, asking him questions, begging him to do miracles, trying to trip him up. Remember, he's on his way to this town on a mission to preach and teach. So he's got things on his mind, he's got things to do, and yet in spite of all that, he not only notices this woman, but he slows down long enough and disengages all those other concerns and allows himself to consider how must she feel right now. What's it like to be in her shoes? Now, a widow in that culture without a man to protect, provide, to give her status in the culture was very alone, very vulnerable. And Jesus pauses and allows himself to feel that vulnerability. But again, we could ask, why her? Why did he notice this woman? He's probably passed other funeral processions before. Why this woman? Well, could it be that he's thinking about his own mother? who in the not-too-distant future will accompany her son's lifeless body out of town? His lifeless body? Is Jesus already anticipating his mother's grief and loneliness? Is he already feeling the burden of care for her after he's gone? Jesus isn't just sympathizing with this woman. He is empathizing with her. Now, sympathy and empathy are similar, and they're both important, but they have a distinct difference. Sympathy is feeling for another person, trying to understand and identify what they're feeling, and that's important. Empathy is feeling with another person, actually entering into that experience with them, trying to feel what's happening. When we can empathize with someone, when we feel what they're feeling because we've been through a similar type of thing, well, now there's an opportunity for neighboring 
that increases exponentially. In fact, I think that's one of the ways the Lord calls to our attention the people he wants us to neighbor. People who've been through the things we've been through. So if you've lost a loved one recently, or if you know what it's like to be the new person in the neighborhood, or if you've brought home a new baby and all the chaos that goes with it, or if you've battled cancer or lost a job, you know what it's like when someone in your sphere of influence has that experience as well. And it becomes an opportunity for you to connect with them. And so neighbors don't just notice, neighbors feel. So let's come back to that woman sitting on the airplane that we asked you about in our opening video. As you settle into your seat and prepare for takeoff, you notice that the woman next to you is crying. She's upset. She's using a tissue to wipe her eyes. It's hard not to notice that in the closed quarters of an airplane seat, but that's actually the beginning of neighboring, just to simply notice what she's going through. But then what do you do? Do you, do you take out your laptop or book and try to give her some privacy so she doesn't feel conspicuous? Maybe that may very well be the right thing to do. But even as you do that, why not allow yourself a moment just to consider, just to imagine what she might be upset about? Maybe she's on her way to or from a funeral and has lost a loved one recently. Maybe she's just dropped a son or daughter off at college and she's grieving that she's not going to see them for a while. Or maybe she just dropped a son or daughter off in the college and she's just tears of joy, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she just said goodbye to her fiancé or boyfriend and she won't see him for a while. Maybe she's leaving home and going off to some new part of the country or some new place in the world and she's feeling alone and afraid. Now, chances are you've felt one or two of those things before you know what it's like to get on a plane broken or heavy-hearted. And just sitting with that feeling for a moment and allowing there to be a connection between you and her, even if you don't say anything, that's neighboring. Remember, Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves because they're humans like we are, because they have feelings like we do. And so when we just feel those things with a person, we become better neighbors. We know them better. William Urey is a Harvard anthropologist. He's an author. He's a TED talker. He wrote the best-selling book on negotiation entitled Getting to Yes. And Urey says, every human being has a deep need for his or her feelings to be recognized. When we do that for someone... We are affirming their humanity. We're validating their experience. And we are connecting with them on a very personal level, even if we don't talk a lot about it. Now, Jesus decides to actually act on this impulse, to express his empathy outwardly. And so he approaches her and says, don't cry. Now, if you're a therapist, don't send me an email, okay? Every therapist will tell you this is the wrong thing to say to a grieving person. A grieving person has every right and reason to cry or not to cry. You really never want to tell a grieving person what they should or shouldn't do. So just to point out, Jesus isn't telling her not to cry because it's inappropriate for her to cry or because he's uncomfortable with her crying. He's telling her not to cry 
because he's about to give her a very good reason not to cry. So there's something different going on here. The point isn't what Jesus said, it's that he said something. He engaged, he reached out, he found a way to let her know that someone noticed her and felt what she's feeling. So let's come back again to the woman on the airplane. Maybe the best thing to do is just take out your work and give her some space. But maybe the best thing to do is to hand her a a tissue without saying a word, just as a silent way of saying, I know you're upset and it's okay. Or maybe you allow your eyes to meet and a simple smile. Again, to let her know that you know and that it's okay. Or maybe you actually say the words, I'm sorry you're upset. And that's all, just to let her know. But even if you decide the best thing you can do is just be quiet and give her space, you still have begun to know her and love her in a significant way by noticing what's happening and identifying with her feelings. It brings us together. And it also opens the door to one more thing we can do that allows us to know our neighbors in a significant way. So let's go to the end of the story as Jesus takes neighboring to a whole new level. Verse 14. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Well, Jesus decides he, he has to do something. He, he has to intervene. And so he approaches the bier, which wasn't a coffin. It would have been an open platform upon which the unwrapped body was carried out to the tomb. And he touches it. Now, don't miss that. A devout religious person would never touch a dead body because that would make them unclean. So apparently, Jesus is not concerned about the consequences of neighboring. It can get messy. It can get complicated. But Jesus presses on. And then he does a remarkable thing, an unprecedented thing, a really kind of crazy thing. He actually speaks to the dead body. Young man, I say to you, arise. And he does. Like a scene from a bad zombie movie, he sits up. And then begins to talk, we're told. Now, what did he say? Where's everybody going? Why the long faces? Who knows? And then, in what I think is one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Gospels, we're told that Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, what was that like? Did Jesus take the mother's hand and the young man's hand and put them together and give them back to each other? after thinking they had lost each other. What a moment. How great would that be to bring that kind of comfort and joy to a person? I mean, you talk about good neighbor. Now, if we had more time, we could dwell on the fact that someday Jesus will do for all of us what he did for that woman and her son that day. He will give us back those we have lost in Christ. Parents, children, spouse, friends, people we have laid to rest, often far sooner than we expected. Someday, the Bible says, in the life to come, 
Jesus will reunite us with those who have been separated from us by death. And that's made possible through faith in his life and death and resurrection. It's secured by that hope, and it's a great image. And if you have lost someone recently, if you're feeling that right now, know that a day will come when Jesus can give them back to you. So this is a pretty incredible moment. But again, a disqualifier, don't try this at home. (laughs) We can't do this. We can't perform these kinds of miracles for our neighbors. We can't give them back their loved ones. We can't heal their diseases. We can't find jobs for them. We can't deliver them from whatever evil is, is afflicting them. We can't restore their marriage. We can't do any of those things for them. But we can do something almost as powerful. We can pray for them. We can bring their names and their needs before the one who can heal and restore and deliver and make new and save. We can pray for them. Now, I realize there's nothing here to suggest or tell us that Jesus prayed for this young man and his mother, but there's another story that tells us he probably did. Remember the story of Lazarus, another graveside scene? Jesus stands outside the tomb, and again, before he speaks to the corpse, what does he do? He prays. John says he looks to heaven and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I do this for their benefit that they may know that you sent me. See, Jesus had already prayed for Lazarus. He'd been praying for Lazarus since the very first moment he heard that Lazarus was sick and for all the days leading up to it. And even right there outside the tomb, he's praying the whole time. He does it publicly so the crowd knows on that particular occasion. For some reason, he doesn't do that here. But we can be sure. The moment Jesus noticed this woman and felt her grief, he began to pray, asking his heavenly father to have mercy on her and asking his father to show him if there was some way he was supposed to be involved. And we can do that too. We can bring our neighbors before God in prayer. Faithful, passionate, fervent, diligent prayer. Asking God to heal, restore, to save, to make new, whatever needs to happen in their lives. And asking God if there's some role he would have us to play. So let's come back to that woman sitting next to us on the airplane. If we decide that the best thing to do is just give them space, having noticed and felt, if we decide the best thing we can do is just silently pray for her, that is not a cowardly cop-out. That is not a lame way to assuage our guilt. That is a great act of love. It's one of the most loving things we can do for someone is to pray for them to bring them before the throne of God. Even even if we never say a word to them about God or Jesus or church, even if there's not one practical thing we can do for them, the simple act of praying for them draws us closer to them and allows God to do something good and powerful in their lives. And so I want to encourage you as you begin filling out that neighborhood map that we're providing you with, begin praying over those eight blank spaces. Lord, who are you calling to my attention? Who are the people I'm noticing and empathizing with lately? 
Don't fill them in all at once. Allow the Lord over the next several weeks to begin calling your attention to people. Some may live nearby. Some may be people you encounter in the course of everyday life. And ask him if there's some role he would have you play in their lives. I can tell you that when it comes to praying for neighbors, there are times and seasons in which I have done really well at that, faithfully, fervently, intentionally praying for neighbors. And there are seasons I have done lousy at it. I've gotten lazy or distracted. And I can tell you that in the seasons when I am faithfully praying for my neighbors, I have way more opportunities to actually interact with my neighbors. And in the couple of weeks that I've been working on this series, praying through these things, I've had more interactions with my neighbors in the past two weeks than I've had in maybe six months. And all of them interactions that have just enriched my life as well as theirs. And I had one of them last Sunday. And I'll just finish with this. Last Sunday afternoon, Karen and I went for our typical Sunday afternoon walk. We'd, we headed out towards Fawn Lake, a little pond in a woodsy area not far from our house. We're making our way around the lake. As we got kind of halfway around and just stopped to admire the view, across the lake, up on a bluff where there's a bench, I could see someone sitting. Now, I don't know why I noticed the person in that moment, but I just noticed them, and I began wondering if they would still be there when we got around to that side of the lake. And sure enough, a little bit later, when we got around to that side of the lake, there was a young man sitting there on that bench. So the three of us all said hi to each other, and talked about what a nice day it was and that sort of thing. And then, then he spoke up. He said, uh, I come out here every day. And I said, hey, that's a cool idea. You can kind of watch the spring come and, and watch the season change, that sort of thing. I figured we were just making some small talk. And then he said, I'm staying over here at the VA hospital. And they went on to tell us that he was a vet. And he was at the hospital recovering physically and emotionally from his most recent tour of duty. It had taken a real toll on him. He even showed us some of his scars. But he was determined to get better, he said, get back on his feet. And I was just so inspired by his courage, first to go off and serve his country and now to come home and fight this battle to get better again. And so I said, way to go, man. I'm really proud of you. Don't give up. And he seemed to take some encouragement. So we chatted a little while longer, and I told him we go to this great church down the road. He'd be welcome to come anytime. Preacher's killer, I said. You'd really love him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. And then before we left, I just asked him his name. We shook hands, and I told him that I'd be praying for him, and we continued on our way. That was a simple little interaction. It lasted maybe about five minutes. And as I look back on it, as I have all week long, I've said, should I have done more? I mean, maybe I should have prayed with them right there on the spot. Maybe I should have told them more about the church or more about the Lord. Maybe I should have offered to give them a ride. I don't know. And I really don't know if I should have done more or less. I'm still learning this neighboring thing. And I don't know what will come of it. Maybe he found his way here today and he's listening and that would be a great thing. Maybe that was the only interaction we'll ever have. But in that moment, for those five minutes, we were neighbors to each other. We connected as fellow human beings, travelers through this world, about something meaningful in both of our lives. And I think we both drew encouragement from it. And I get to keep on praying for him. 
that God might continue to do a good work in his life. Friends, what a wonderful way to live this is. What a great way to spend your day walking through life, looking for the people God might call to your attention. This is not a commandment. This is an invitation. This is a privilege to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your neighbor the way Jesus did. And it's as simple as noticing them, feeling with them, and praying for them. And when we do those simple things, as we just discovered, almost anything can happen. So let's pray. And as we do, let's take just a moment or two for each of us quietly to ask God to call our attention to some of the people in our lives that he wants us to be loving as our neighbors in the days to come. Just begin asking the Lord, who is my neighbor? Lord, as we have done so many times, we're thankful that you came to earth and became like one of us, that you lived among us to show us the way to live and to love. Thank you for making it as simple and accessible as this. Thank you for offering us your Holy Spirit to help us. And so we're grateful for the opportunity we have individually and collectively in the weeks to come to begin noticing and knowing and loving the people you bring to our attention. We invite you to do that, Lord, that individually and collectively we might be your people in this world for their sake and ours and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.